History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello, you're listening to History Happened Everywhere. Uh, I'm Pete Goddard, and I'm here with my co-host, the mighty Ryan Weir. Hello, Peter. What would be your superhero name, actually? Uh, Ryan Man. Ryan Man. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, am Ryan. Ryan. <laughs> <Check>. <laughs> And how would you go about uh, foiling the crimes in progress that you stumble upon in your day-to-day life? Well, much like my namesake, Iron Man, I have a suit <laughs> that is just me. Is it just a, it's it's a another suit with pictures suit. of you on it? <laughs> a skin suit, a yeah. whole you suit. <laughs> yeah, like I have a little, carry a little suitcase. So it's just you, up, slightly think, bigger. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like a couple of millimetres thicker. And zip up at the back was the, was no, the mechanism the front, here. because otherwise I'd be... Oh, I guess at the back. Surface the back zip, don't they? Yeah, I just have a little string. Hmm. Well, no, they don't zip at the front. There's not many things you zip at the back unless it's a dress. A lovely summer dress. Oh, a nice summer dress. I'd like to be wearing a nice, light, flowy summer dress right now. Mm. Because it's so hot. Well, if it helps, <laughs> I'm imagining you wearing a nice, flowy summer dress. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Audience, don't feel the need to join him in this <laughs> engagement. I do get female clothing envy in the summer, I have to say. Really? Yeah, there's not really... I don't like wearing shorts. Mm. And there's not a lot of choice in male clothing, is there? Not really. I mean, I don't feel like we fully embrace the kilt. That's true. Well, there's always someone who then insists that it's not your time, isn't there? There's a problem yeah. with the kilt snobbery, I find. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I have my own tartan. We are tartan. Oh, really? Yep. How's it's it, a very uh, nice blue and purpley, greeny kind of tartan. All right. Yeah. I've never seen you in a kilt, though. They're quite expensive. That's um, why. Oh, right. I've <laughs> <laughs> got this in Gingham. I went to Edinburgh, <laughs> and they have a shop where you can get fitted out for one. And I got measured up. And then I went, cool, I'll order one in the weird tartan, please. And he went, sure, it's a bazillion pounds. Ah, and you went, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, goodbye. <laughs> Joke. <laughs> Psych. Oh, dear. Anyway, we're not here to talk about summer clothing. What are we here to talk about? Well, if anything, probably winter clothing. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, well, let's have a little review and see what we're going to be talking about today. Yes, that's right. Let's find out. With the Wayback Machine. Hit the button. When you are ready, please. I'm ready, I'm ready. Okay, so your... Give me my task. Your your country... Your country is wildcard. Ooh. For those people unfamiliar, the wild card is our default card, which allows me to select a country of my own choice. Within a minute. Within one minute. Okay. But time starts after we've established the other items. Okay. So, uh, give me a time. Time period is... Wright Brothers to Concord. So that's a time period of 1903 to 1976. Ooh, okay. I'm all right with that. potential there. Okay. And are you ready for your topic? 
I am ready for my topic. And your topic is? Yeah. <laughs> Curiosity killed the cat. Oh. So there you have it. So, okay, so... Uh, Curiosity well, killed the cat. No, we don't have it. Oh, well, no, we do. We, I'm about to put the pressure on. I'm not oh, giving you okay. time to think. Curiosity killed the cat. Uh, the Wright Brothers to Concord. You've got one minute, starting now. Okay. Um, so I'm trying to put you off by saying things in your ear while you're yeah. trying to think. I wish we had a map. Why, can't, why don't we get a map on the wall? And That's then I a, could pick from the map. That would make things too easy. Ugh. Greenland. Greenland. Yeah, well, wild I did Canada. Card is selected. I did Canada before as a wild card. Right. Now I'm going to do Greenland. I'm not sure I see the connection. <laughs> They're near each other. Okay, right. Okay, Greenland. All right, your country is Greenland. Your time period is the Wright Brothers to Concord. Okay, and Curiosity killed the cat. Curiosity killed the cat. I look forward to seeing what you come up with. Yeah, me too. So, mm. I'm I'm surprised, I'll be honest, last week. I thought it was a, quite a gamble to pick Greenland. I'm not sure how it came to you. But uh, I'm excited, for one, to find out what's going on. I'm curious, like the cat. Oh, well, be careful, because you know what happens to the cat. What gets curious? Mm, okay, then I'm curious like a mongoose, <laughs> which was fine. <laughs> it's less he found out everything same. he wanted to know and was quite happy with the situation. Retired, young, <laughs> with a nice pension. Yeah, that, that famous No one saying. ever talks about the mongoose, do they? <laughs> it's less of a news story. <laughs> okay, so let's get started then. Uh, we are talking about... Greenland. Yes, and where would I find Greenland? Well, it's it's the world's largest island, so you'd probably be hard-pressed not to find it. It lays in the North Atlantic. It is a land of ice, a land of glaciers, of Eskimos, of long nights and polar bears and reindeer, and ermines and lemmings and seals and whales and cod and salmon and wolffish and lumpfish. 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 And wolffish. The lumpfish. It is one of their prime seafoods that they serve in Greenland. And uh, its roe, caviar, served as an appetizer. So as an appetizer to this episode, I thought we'd get the ball rolling straight away. Nice! <laughs> <laughs> so, I do like to start all podcasts with caviar on. You might be starting something here. <laughs> right, exactly. So one second. Okay, so I want you to describe what you've got in front of you. So I have in front of me a plate with two, four, six, seven are beautifully arranged. Little, um, it, it looks like something that I, if I were at a wedding prior to the meal, someone yes. would be bringing around. Exactly. And you'd be like, oh, delightful. <laughs> so it's like a little, um, I want to say almost like a not muffin, sort of a bready base. It's a bready base. It's a bellini. Yep. Uh, then a cream cheese, is that? Uh, it's sour cream. Sour cream. Okay. And then there's the little, uh, the roux, I guess, the yeah. caviar. There is. There's also a little red onion ah. slice on there as well. And um, some chives just sprinkled on top. The caviar kind of looks like a blackberry, I would say. It does, yeah. I mean, actually, the, the more common lumpfish roe is pink in colour. It's like a, a dusty pink colour. But given the time constraints and the fact that it was from Greenland, I struggled <laughs> to get the pink one. So we have black instead, oh, which black. is fine. I'm, I'm absolutely fine. Would you, would you care for a blini, sir? Yes, I would. All right. Um, I guess I'll go for the one nearest to me. So what's the best thing? Just to lob it in your mouth? And, yes. Uh, what do you think? Giving it a good chew. Mmm. Mm, really good, actually. Yeah? It's salty. Mm. Tastes like the sea. I like it. I'm having another one. Mm. Have you ever had caviar before? Once, I think. I was curious because I've never had it, so I thought I would make some. Mm. 
a success, sir. A triumph. You can cater my wedding. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, I'm getting loads of little caviar bits in my <laughs> between my teeth. <laughs> Ew, don't think about it, don't think about it, don't think about it, move on. Okay, Greenland has one massive ice sheet. 80% of the country is covered in ice. And it is vast tundra, immense glaciers. You'll probably have seen news footage of icebergs being carved off the ends of uh, mm. glaciers, falling into the sea and causing those big splashes. That's usually uh, off, of, off of Greenland. Sorry, just picking out these <laughs> crunchy, <laughs> crunchy row... It extends about 1,600 miles from north to south and 650 miles from east to west. So that's 2,670 kilometres by 1,000 kilometres east to west. It's a big island. The coastline itself is 24,000 miles long. That is roughly the equivalent of the Earth's circumference at the equator. Wow. Reason for that being they have like little deep fjord type things right. that so run if you just drew a circle island. around it it wouldn't be anything like that but we've got lots of nooks, nooks and, and crannies. crannies lots of nooks and crannies on the greenland it's less than 500 miles from the north pole it's 200 miles from iceland but it's only 16 miles from canada which How is so? remarkably close uh, that is from Ellesmere Island in the north. So I don't know if you can recall uh, Canada. Canada is like a big chunk, but then it's yeah, also broken so up into oh, a whole right, yeah. bunch got that sort of, of bit at the top that loads of islands out. and things. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, uh, in theory, you can actually walk from Greenland to Canada, and polar bears sometimes do do exactly that. I should imagine you're wondering how big Greenland is in comparison to perhaps a European country of some maybe, sort. Maybe uh, something like Gallic. Well, like a France? Or maybe a France, yeah, why not? Okay, so total area of Greenland is 2.16 million square kilometres. That is 836,000 square miles. That's about 3.36 Frances in a Greenland. That's significant. I like 80 it. 80% of that is ice. So, so you're never, never in need for your drink. you just got to reach out. Clink, clink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Layers of snow that compresses into the ice and that moves out from the centre outwards. And that's what your glaciers are, basically, is the compressed snow as it keeps getting pushed down. The Jakobsvorn glacier moves as fast as 100 feet. That's 30 metres a day. Can you feel it? Well, if you're standing on it, I'm yeah. guessing, yeah. 30 metres a day. I mean, that's not like a bicycle, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. But that's a cool stat, right? But how about this? It's an ice sheet over the top of Greenland, right? But how deep do you think it goes? I think it is 200 metres. It is more than 200 metres. It is 10 Eiffel Towers worth, or four Burj Khalifas worth of ice. Wow. It is exactly 10,000 feet at its deepest, 3,000 metres deep. Wow. That's a lot of ice. Average winter temperatures... Obviously, with snow and the ice, you'd think it might be quite cold. Risk, I would imagine. <laughs> it certainly is. So your average winter temperature is low 20 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about minus 7 degrees Celsius. Mm. And that gets down to about minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about minus 34 degrees Celsius. It gets cold. And it especially gets cold uh, during the winter when there is the there is no sun. The sun does not pass overhead for many months. Oh, I see. They have that midnight sun Indeed. and the sun and the... And then in the summer, you have two months of midnight sun. Yeah. Have um, you ever experienced the midnight sun? No, no, but I kind of really want to. I did once. I was in Iceland and it was like 3 or 4 a.m. and it was just bright out. It was slightly dimmer, but mm. it was very unsettling. Yeah, super weird. Your body clock just goes crazy. I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the drink. <laughs> Total population, 57,000 people living there in all of that wow. space. Nine-tenths of which are Inuit or Eskimo. 
one-tenth are Danish, mostly born in Denmark, and then, I guess, go and work over in Greenland. The official language is Greenlandic and Danish, although they do speak a little bit of English as well. Kalalisu. Kalalisu. Kalalisu is uh, an Inuit language um, belonging to the Eskimo Alue language family, and they have introduced words to our lexicon, words that you perhaps hadn't considered, but you do know, things like the word igloo. Oh, of course. And the word kayak. Oh, right. That's from these guys. Oh, well done. Thanks, guys. Fun fact for you, barely any roads in Greenland. Like, in the towns you might find them, but then at the edge of the town they just stop, and then it's terrain, rough terrain, whether it's ice or whether or not it's just land. That's it. So, How did the sat-nav deal with that? (laughs) (laughs) Not easily. Um, So you're going to get around either by dog sled, by snowmobile, but mainly by ship or by air. Those are your main ways of getting around. So if you wanted to get to Greenland, the only way you can fly there is from Iceland and Denmark. I imagine you probably want to hear the national anthem, right? I definitely do. Do you want to know what the national anthem is called? Go on. <laughs> okay. The national anthem is written by Jonathan Peterson, and it go and it's called Nunapet Utaka Swingovet. Nunapet Utaka Swingovet. Nunapet Utaka Swingovet. was a slow burner for me but it roused at the end so it did take a while though you're absolutely right okay so that was the national anthem it's noon up head go on then i take a swing of it <laughs> then i take a swing of it yeah, that's all that's actually not bad <laughs> you talk a swing of it okay history the inuit crossover from canada in a series of migrations from about 2500 bce yeah better than kayaks uh, probably yeah or walking across the ice each wave over the 2000 years brings different cultures so it's not one culture there's like several different waves of, of cultures that co- come across in 982 eric the red appears uh, after having been banished from iceland for manslaughter he goes back to iceland three years later in 985 basically looking for people to go with him back to greenland and he says hey i've been to greenland it's really green there guys Oh, it's a marketing ploy. <laughs> it's either a kind of marketing ploy or temperatures were actually warmer then and it, it was actually a bit greener. But either way, it worked because a lot of people went over with him. It, eventually, they had two two big settlements there with a population of around about 6,000 people, over 280 farms. So I guess whatever he said was convincing enough to go with a manslaughterer <laughs> to a strange world. In the year 1000, Eric's son... Leif Eriksson. We've met Leif Eriksson before. We have indeed. He brings Christianity to the island. He's like, hey, guys, look what I found. God. I found God. I found God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 200 years later, sort of 1200, Norse settlers start to interact with the Inuit. 100 years later, the settlements are starting to decline. We don't know why, perhaps due to the climate change. But literally 100 years later, so only 400 years after they'd started to settle there, there is no more Norse in mm-hmm. Greenland. All gone. In 1721, however, a Danish-Norwegian trading company is formed on the island, and that starts the process of the Danes saying, you know what, we're just going to claim Greenland for ourselves. So we're going to shut down 
all foreign access to the island, and it remained unopened for 180 years. Wow. No one else was allowed to go there and... I mean, they weren't queuing up, were they? 1950. <laughs> well, I guess not, no. Uh, no 1950, no, though, that's, that's the other day, isn't it? A long time, yeah. Uh, so, 1938, the Nazis. They're occupying most of Europe, including Denmark. And so, in World War II, the USA step in and go, hey, Denmark, it's cool. We'll look after Greenland for you while you're, uh, while you're busy being taken over. And so, it's at the end of the war that Greenland is then returned to Denmark. And Greenland becomes essentially an integral part of the Kingdom of Denmark. It's still to this day part of the Kingdom of Denmark, but it is home ruled by a government on the island for their domestic affairs. All right. So they're not a country, but they're... Uh, they're a, they're actually technically a county of all Denmark, right. but they are a country. It's all a little bit confusing, if I'm honest. <laughs> Right, so that's kind of the history. Obviously, we're going to go into the history a little bit more specifically around the time period of, let's say, the Wright brothers to Concord. That kind of area. Um, yeah. So, are you familiar of the with the Wright brothers? Uh, yes, I, I like the early works. They um, mm -hmm. were keen aviationists they in that they indeed. managed to fling a, an airplane into the air and uh, started that whole they revolution. They did. They were actually early uh, enthusiasts of the bicycle. Uh, they had they ran a bicycle company and uh, uh, used their sort of proceeds from that to help design and build a glider which they called Kitty Hawk. And then between 1901 to 1903, they were experimenting with that design. They built themselves like a, a wind tunnel. It's one of the first ones of its kind. So smart guys. And in 1903, which is the time period that starts our episode today, they achieve the first powered, sustained, and controlled airplane flight. And it flies for 12 seconds in North Carolina. Good afternoon and welcome to Wright Brothers Air. We'll be travelling at approximately 3 metres in altitude. The time is now 11.35 and we hope to be at our destination at 11.35 and 12 seconds. And our flight is taking off now. Emergency exits are there, there and there. Tray tables are up. Seatbelt light is off. Tray tables down. Peanuts. Do you want peanuts? It's too late. Seatbelt lights back on. Tray tables up. We're coming to land and we've landed. Thank you for flying Wright Brothers Air. We appreciate you have absolutely no choice of airline and we hope to see you again soon. In 1905, just two years later, they flew the first fully practical airplane. It was equipped with engines and it ran for 39 minutes. And from that point on, the plane industry goes crazy and everyone's building planes and better and better and better ones. In fact, by 1912, just, what, seven years later, the Wrights are no longer making the best airplanes in the world. Um, you've got World War I starting, you've got guns and bombs and cameras are being added to planes. Post-World War I, it goes from sort of low-powered bike planes to... Well, they were basically airborne deck chairs, weren't they? It was canvas and wooden string. <laughs> That's exactly what they were. Yeah, exactly. And they were throwing bricks instead of bombs in the first place. Oh, those poor guys. But yeah, th then they started going to more high-powered monoplanes, so just the, the one set of wings made of aluminium. And then World War II comes along and the, the production of planes just goes absolutely bonkers and the variety of different types of planes, the numbers of planes just, just goes stratospheric. Post-war, there's loads of these planes lying around after the war. So commercial aviation goes, well, we'll use these and we'll ch charge people tickets and we'll fly them around. And so that's where your your, your more commercial flight kicks in. Um, and that's also the period where records in speed and distance, they all start to be broken as people are traveling faster and faster around the world 
There must have been a brief, brief period, or there was a brief period, clearly, where the Wright brothers had just started and they would take off and they would know for a fact that they were the only aeroplane in the air. It's like, do do I need to look out for anything? Not really. It's just us up here. (laughs) It's just us. Yeah, apart from birds. You want to watch out for the birds flying Yeah, a big goose in the engine is going to be a problem. So that brings us to 1962 and Britain and France get together and they're like, hey, we should uh, build a plane together, like something that's super fast like you know a subsonic commercial passenger plane and we should maybe call it the concord <sighs> and they did that's what exactly what they did they designed it they built it it was a plane that could reach 1354 miles per hour which that makes you wonder what the what the orvilles might have thought of that well it is when you consider that was 62 and the orvilles were flying in 03 for 12 seconds <laughs> they fly to america in three hours or <laughs> yeah well that's exactly right yeah so it was mac 2 0.04 so two times speed of sound uh 1969 was the first flight of concord 73 was the first transatlantic crossing 76 uh was the first scheduled passenger service and that flew from london to bahrain and then from paris to rio so they flew at the same time it's flown to destinations all over the world but the noise of the plane <laughs> going that fast the costs that it, it, it took meant that they reduced the the number of flights that they had to just new york being the only destination so the flight time between london and new york was just three hours as you said and the round trip was how much do you think two thousand no five thousand ten thousand pounds well, in US dollars, adjusting for inflation, so 12 and a half. So not far off. So you wanted to fly by yourself. It's <laughs> 12 and a half thousand pounds. But you'd be in New York within three hours. Yeah, so. well, yeah that's... Uh if you're if those three extra hours are worth it to you. yeah i mean the other benefit of buying a twelve and a half thousand pound ticket is that the flights were often half full so you had plenty of legroom in the year 2000 there was an engine failure in paris in one of the concords and it resulted in a crash which killed 109 people on board and four others in a building that it hit so from 2003 operations just sort of ceased that really just killed off the concord it's an interesting area, isn't it? Because you always think of technology as sort of marching in one direction. But in actual fact, in, in aviation, it, there, there is the technology to go super fast from A to B. Yep. But it just, it's sort of plateaued, hasn't it? You don't really have, there's no new Concorde. There's planes seem to be going about the same as they always have, well, have recently. Mm-hmm. And there isn't that progression. And in fact, it's gone backwards. We, we don't now go London to New York in three hours. We don't that is true but there has been the progression of space industry which has sort of taken over i would argue that ingenuity yeah oh so absolutely your spacex yeah, so. and your blue so, yeah, so, to, yeah blue so i didn't i guess i didn't mean technology is going backwards per se it's just that there is a point at which progress in this particular area london to new york say mm-hmm. it, it's just not it's not worth it anymore we could go faster but we just choose not to fundamentally potentially we can use that same technology which is currently being used to go to space to be able to sort of skip up and over and back down again in a much quicker period of time than if you were to just travel through yeah oh no absolutely good i think it seems likely to me that there will be another jump where suddenly that becomes the practical way of doing that thing and then we'll be off and running again first how quick we can do that little loop unless there is a shift in the way in which we interact with each other Zoom calls, for example, Skype calls or whatever technology we're using make travel less relevant. Do you need to do your office trip to Japan when you can just have a virtual yeah, meeting? Fair point. Obviously, the people still want to travel, but as virtual reality becomes more and more accessible to the everyday man, maybe not. Maybe you're able to go and visit all those places you wanted to see with sort of some level of tangible reality to it virtually. I will be making my next trip to New York on an ocean liner. 
called the Titanic. <laughs> Okay, so that is our time period. So let's talk about the subject. Curiosity killed the cat. It's a saying. I'm sure we've all used it at some point. Uh, It warns about the dangers of being too inquisitive, how that can sometimes lead to danger or misfortune. The origins from it are from care killed the cat. Care meaning worry in this instance, not as in like I'm caring for you. So worry killed the cat. And it's said that a cat has nine lives, which you'll have heard of, yet worry is such a thing that it would actually wear all of those nine lives out. So worry would would kill a cat. It was first used by Ben Jonson in 1598. And then a year later, William Shakespeare came along with Much Ado About Nothing, where he also referred to care killing the cat. The modern variation that we're sort of more familiar with that started in an Irish newspaper, it seems, in 1868, where there was a headline, they say curiosity killed a cat once. The proverb spread. There's a headline in the Washington Post on the 4th of March, 1916, which said, Curiosity killed the cat. And it tells a story underneath about uh, a cat called Blackie, who is inquisitive about a chimney. And eventually Blackie goes into the chimney and climbs up and he gets stuck and falls down the chimney and breaks his back and dies. Wow, they didn't pull their punches, did they? Poor old Blackie the cat. I'm also slightly nervous about the quality of news in this in this area if this makes it to the front pages. Well, it's only 1916, you know, there was nothing else happening in the world. <laughs> Did you hear about that cat? Oh, yeah, terrible business. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, but there is a fuller version. Uh, Curiosity Killed the Cat is only the first half of actually the saying, and this, the full saying, Curiosity Killed the Cat, but Satisfaction Brought It Back. And that sort of suggests that taking the risk might actually lead to satisfaction if you find out the thing that you were curious about. I mean, I always feel that curiosity is something to be encouraged rather than discouraged, but... uh... It just depends on the on the, the level of danger that you might find yourself in. Yeah, I suppose a child reaching out towards a hot plate is probably too curious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Oh, are you all right, mate? No, not really. My cat died. Oh, well, he got into this NASA facility and he was, like, run over by the Mars Curiosity rover. Oh, so what you're saying is... Yeah, that's right. Mars attacked. Oh, that How to Write Sketches course really hasn't paid off for you, has it, mate? Total waste of money. All right, we're going to do it. I'm getting comfortable. Get comfortable. There's a lot of words here. Okay. I'm... Are you comfortable? Well, I'm hot, but yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable. Yeah. During the Nazi occupation of Denmark, the Danish ambassador to the United States makes an agreement, in quotes, in the name of the king, authorizing the US to defend Danish colonies from German aggression. The Danish government, however, go, wait, what? <laughs> we, don't, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want that at all. And they charge the ambassador with high treason for oh having done Lord. that. But it's too late. The deal is done. And the treaty allows the US to operate military bases in Greenland, in quotes, for as long as there is agreement that a threat to North America exists. That feels like something they'd still be arguing about to this very day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So 
now that that agreement is in place, the US Coast Guard and the War Department starts to establish weather and radio stations on Greenland. And in 1945, Nazi Germany surrenders. The alliance between the United States and the Soviet Union starts to sort of unravel a little bit. It's sour, doesn't it? It does a little bit. So the Americans and the British look at the Soviets and they think, wait, they're going to use this vacuum of the Nazis to sort of dominate all of these Eastern countries that they've liberated. And the Soviets are looking at the US and the Brits and thinking those Western European countries they liberated, they're probably going to have, you know, some influence over those as well. So they're just looking at each other with with a keen eye. So 1949, the US and its allies get together and they're like, hey, we should form like a team to stop any Soviet presence in Europe. Super friends. Super friends, exactly. Except they call it NATO. Ah, it's not as good. North could Atlantic have been, Treaty Could have been super friends, that's all could I'm saying. Been, right? That would have been way better. So Denmark joins NATO and because it's an ally... They kind of forget its issues with the whole US bases on Greenland. They're like, <laughs> fine, whatever. But things start to heat up from that point. The Soviets explode their first warhead, their atomic warhead. And America goes, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Only we can do that. <laughs> so they see it as a direct challenge um, to their monopoly on their atomic weapons. At the same time, the communist government of North Korea, heard of them? I'm aware. Yeah, they, with help from Russia, invade South Korea, who are supported by the United States. And so the Korean War starts. Now, the United States Air Force reacts to rising tension by building bases around the globe for nuclear retaliation. The Russians have proven that they now have these atomic weapons, and so they need some line of defense to protect themselves. So Greenland is considered like the perfect location. It is uh, you know, essentially on the pole across from the USSR. So we look at a map of, of the world side on yeah. from the equator. But if you spin the world and look at it from above, so you've got the pole right underneath you, you've got the north. North America, so Canada over on the left-hand side, Greenland in the middle, and then on the right-hand side, you've just got USSR. It's one big ice rink with <laughs> separating those two countries. So yeah, so the US and Denmark, they get together and they're like, hey, we should uh, re-sign a new wartime agreement, right? Like the last one, but let's just extend it just slightly. And NATO sees this and goes, hey guys, what you up to? We should get in on that as well. So NATO suggests that they should be included in the agreement as well so that they can use the facilities that are built in yeah, we want, in we want to play well. with your toys too. Exactly. So in 1951, with plans approved by President Truman, the United States Air Force builds a base in the northwest corner of Greenland. Okay. Originally called Umarak, it was then since known as Thule. Thule is named after Ultimate Thule, which is Latin and ancient Greek phrase meaning the farthest land north of the borders of the known world. The Greek and the English pronounce it with a soft th, that's why I'm saying Thule, and the Danish pronounce it with an in, like a, an initial hard t, so Thule. Ah, so we're going to we're going to be referring to it as Thule. Fair enough. To make way for the, the airbase, the Danish government goes, well, there's these pesky nomadic people. Oh, they're always in the way, aren't they? So, living their lives. Living their lives. <laughs> so we should just, well, we'll just relocate them. It's cool. We'll move them. It's only 130 people. So they move them 60 miles north to New Thule. So under the name Operation Blue Jay, the construction of Thule Airbase happens in total secrecy. Now, it's considered a project on par with the effort to build the Panama Canal. And they did this entirely secretly. Wow. So on the 6th of June, 1951, 120 ships left the United States in an armada toward Greenland at the same time. There were 12,000 men on board. There was 300,000 tons of cargo. 
And so this was, it was one hit. That's been an amazing sign. Right. Uh, and then they had continuous daylight. So they picked the summer to do it. So they could just work 24 seven. They were just, they just worked throughout the summer, just building, building the airbase. So in 1952, it sort of gets rumbled. There is a French explorer who just literally stumbles across it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, there's a whole airbase. Oh, hi, guys. <laughs> <laughs> what you doing? Ignore <laughs> me. Just making my way through. Uh, yeah, he'd been to the North Pole and he was waking, making his way back. And uh, yeah, he was like, this doesn't seem right. So they were like, well, we should announce that we're building this because it's just going to get out eventually. So they announced that there is a Strategic Air Command, an SAC airbase that is then announced in 1952. Operation starts one year later, 1953. Now this presents a slight problem, and I'm going to call this section the nuclear problem. Ooh. Okay, so in the 1950s... I'll be, I'll be honest, I was pl quite pleased for the French explorer, given the topic was curiosity killed the cat, mm. and the French explorer stumbled upon the top secret military facility. <laughs> I thought that was going in Is a that direction what you were I didn't want to hear. So. Well, you, you, you tell me when you think that the curiosity killed the cat kicks in on this. Okay, right. if an actual cat arrives, I'll be hitting my button. <laughs> I did spend a lot of time looking for cat-related stories. Uh, yeah. So in the 1950s, there is increasing opposition to nuclear weapons globally, but also within Denmark. And there are protest marches across the country. H.C. Hansen, who is the prime minister of Denmark at the time, in a televised interview says, it is a matter of principle. As regards the new weapons, Denmark's position is clear. We do not believe that Denmark should have these weapons. And so Denmark is a nuclear weapon-free zone. Not just Denmark, but all of its territories, including Greenland and the Faroe Islands. So no nukes. This policy extends to the Americans in their 1951 re-agreement. And that's fine. The Americans are like, that's totally cool. We have another plan for our nukes anyway. And what that plan is, is something super badass called Chrome Dome. <laughs> It sounds like it would be a Mad Max film or something. I would go see Chrome Dome. Chrome Dome, <laughs> coming this fall. Chrome Dome is an airborne alert program which started in 1960. The plan was to arm 12 Boeing B-52 Stratofortress bombers with nukes and fly anti-clockwise around North America. So at all times, there are 12 armed bomber planes flying anti-clockwise around North America. The bombers take off in Texas. They fly across the United States to New England. They fly out over the Atlantic, heading north toward where Greenland is. That's where a tanker plane meets them in midair and they refuel in midair. It then changes course and flies left across the top of Canada towards Alaska, where it refuels again near the USSR border, which is convenient for them to do little strategic spying and stuff. And then they fly all the way south back down Texas again. So that's the route that it takes. Did they swap crews? Did they have people living on board? Is that a tour bus situation? No. So they would fly back to Texas. They would land. They would rest. Another plane would take off as they landed, right? So, so there was always 12 in the air. How long was a shift? Then? Like a 12 hour? Be, yeah, maybe a bit longer, uh, I guess. But they would have had enough crew that perhaps they could take two shifts or something. But yeah, so in the air around America, the whole time is creating this dome of nukes. So this gave them the offensive capability in case the Soviets decided to strike. And it worked as a, as a deterrent. 
It's an amazing concept, isn't it? There is always a bomber or a bunch of bombers yeah, flying around them, at fact, all times. At all times, yeah, exactly. But less expensive systems were being created at the same time because it costs quite a lot to keep those planes in the air at all times. And so there were plans put forward to scrap Chrome Dome, but a compromise was reached, and that was to reduce the number of planes so they don't have 12 going, maybe there's just f- fewer, uh, and to also shift the domes. So they created three domes, They spread from the east across the Atlantic and the Mediterranean, so covering Europe, and then northwest over Alaska, and then northeast towards Greenland. Now, not long after this was implemented, after they'd reduced the numbers and they'd created these three separate domes, uh, a B-52 collided with the tanker that it was using to refuel above the Mediterranean, and it exploded, showering the small Spanish fishing village of Palomares with basically one square mile of radioactive plutonium Ooh. from above. So you can imagine the press that that received. Not great. It still didn't get cancelled. Chrome Dome still continued. But what they did do was reduce the numbers even further. So now there's just one aircraft and it's assigned to monitor the airspace over Greenland, overlooking the base, providing surveillance over the, their early warning systems just to make sure that they're not attacked or anything. So they just sort of hover just outside the territory because they're not allowed to fly over the territory because they've got agreements, nukes on board. Not allowed nukes on Greenland. Yeah, so that's what I meant, the agreement to not have nukes yes, on. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so the plane flies back and forth in like this continual loop from the United States to just outside of Greenland, has these four thermonuclear uh, devices on board. It's not what you sign up for as a pilot, is it? You, you think you're going to be doing interesting things and go, could you just fly in a circle day in, day out, please? <laughs> yeah, until something interesting does happen and then you're in charge of... <laughs> yeah. Saving the world Save. and or destroying the <laughs> world. And or destroying the world, yeah. Yeah, bit of both, I think. Uh, so that happens just continuously for two years. Until 1968, 21st of January, Captain John Horg boards the B-52 with his crew. And before takeoff, the third pilot, Major Alfred DeMario, is tasked with stowing loose items, you know, like you do on a plane, put the seats upright. And Tray table in the upright. Bags under your, under your chair and <laughs> yeah. all that sort of stuff. Well, that's what he does. So he takes a whole bunch of loose objects, including some foam cushions, and he puts them under the navigator's seat in the aft section of the lower deck. Take off, flying through the air. He finds another cushion and he stows it under the navigator seat too because it's, I guess, banging around. The flight north is uneventful. Totally cool. They refuel in midair. Slight problem with the refuel, but nothing to write home about. Captain Horg tells his co-pilot after a few hours, Leonard Svitenko, to get some rest and DeMario replaces him. So they're flying along, flight continues, all pretty cool. But they're up north, right? It's pretty cold, especially that high up, and the crew is starting to get uncomfortably cold. So DeMario can't turn the heaters up any higher because they're already up on full. So he opens an engine bleed valve to draw hot air from the engine into the heater to heat it up even more. But the air is like barely cooling as it travels from the engine through the conduits to the cabin. So over the next half an hour, the temperature just rises quickly and quickly and quickly to the point where those pillows that DeMario had stowed under the navigator's seat burst into flames. Boom. He'd put them on top of one of the heater grates. Oh. So the crew are like, something doesn't smell right. And they all like start searching the plane, looking for a fire and they can't find it. Because the pilot's sitting on it. (laughs) (laughs) The navigator, yeah. And so the navigator checks the aft section of the lower deck, but he can't find the fire, which you'd think would be easy to find, but apparently he missed it. He only discovered it the second time round after he went back round for a more thorough look. So he then uses two fire extinguishers on it, still doesn't put it out. So at this point, they're six hours into the flight, they're 90 miles south of Thule Air Base, and an emergency is declared. 
Thule Air Traffic Control are told of the fire, and they grant permission for an emergency landing at the airbase. Ooh, bringing nukes into Greenland. It's an emergency, right? True. In, in that situation, what else are they going to do? So on board, within five minutes of them getting that, that notice, all the fire extinguishers are now depleted. The electrical power is gone, and smoke fills the cockpit so much that the pilots can't even read their instruments. So they're in serious trouble. So the captain goes, right, well, I can't land if I can't see the instruments. So we got bail. So that's what they do. And they use the ejection seats, which they're, they're sitting in, and they get ready to, to jump. So they, the, the pilot sort of aims the plane towards Greenland because they don't want to jump over the sea. That would be less than, than good. They wait a word from the captain and he says, go for it. And they pull the cord or whatever it is and their seats go wow. and they eject out of the plane. Apart from Leonard Svitvenko. Remember him? The guy who was told to go and have a nap? Yeah. So he'd given up his seat because he'd gone to have a nap. So he didn't get to eject. Poor guy. So he wakes up. He goes down to the lower hatches of the plane and he tries to bail out, but he suffers like this massive head injury, I guess, bouncing off the plane as he goes and he dies almost instantly. Oh, no. Yeah. Sorry, Leonard. (sighs) Ah. What a lovely nap. Oh, what's this? A note. Dear Leonard. Hmm, it's me. Hope you had a lovely nap. I did. Uh, just FYI, we have abandoned the plane. You might want to join us. Also, the plane is on fire. Also, there were no ejector seats left. Sorry about that. I didn't want to wake you as you looked so peaceful sleeping. Best of luck. So the crewless airplane continues flying north and it banks left slowly and it crashes onto the sea ice seven and a half miles. That's 12.1 kilometers west of Thule Air Base. Still full of bombs. Still full of bombs. You're going to want to collect them, aren't you? Yeah. Well, let's see what happened in the aftermath. Yeah. Okay. So Captain Hawk, remember him? And DeMario, remember him of I the remember. pillow fame? I remember. <laughs> It's all, it's all DeMario's fault, isn't it? <laughs> all of this. You couldn't leave a pillow alone. Exactly. Hey, I'm DeMario. <laughs> They're lucky, those two. They parachute directly into the base itself. So they just like... <laughs> I got it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they contact the base commander and the off-duty staff are, are all mustered to search for the remaining crew members. So three crew members are found one and a half miles to 0.4 kilometers from the base and are rescued within two hours. Kind of cool for them. Captain Chris, however, he was the first to eject. He lands six miles, 9.7 kilometers from the base. Bearing in mind, this is pitch black. Yeah, there is they no were daylight. cold in the plane. Now he's out of the plane, so he clearly wasn't wearing a jumper. And that is exactly right. He is lost for 21 hours in minus 23 degree Fahrenheit, at minus 31 degrees Celsius temperature. And he only survives hypothermia by wrapping himself in his parachute. Ah, good move. Yeah. I mean, I'd be more worried about the polar bears. But there you go, out in the middle of nowhere with There's no one. Just so many things to worry about. I suppose you just have to make a list. And I guess <laughs> just roll yourself up in your parachute and be like, well, here we go. Come on, Captain Chris, we can get through this. That's him talking <laughs> to himself. He's talking to himself anyway. Yeah. That's what I'd do. <laughs> right, Captain Hogg and DeMario have to then explain that the aircraft that they were flying in was carrying four nuclear weapons. That's pretty obvious because at the point of impact of the plane as it hits the sea ice, explosives in the 1.1 megaton B28FI thermonuclear bombs detonate. 
which is they're designed to do. It's a deliberate design to ensure that the payload doesn't explode and there aren't four nuclear bombs going off at the same time. It just blasts the actual explosives rather than the actual payload itself. But what that does mean is, is that the, the radioactive material is ruptured in the process and material is then sent flying across a three mile area, 4.8 kilometers area. So plutonium levels at the point of impact are registered as high as 380 milligrams. Inhaling 20 milligrams of plutonium would kill you within just a few months. It's a problem. That's pretty radioactive. On the plus side, I guess everything's glowing green, so at least you can see. Yeah, you can find, you can find them, all right? There's a bit. <laughs> There's a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so not only that, the heat generated by the burning jet fuel, remember it had just refueled, so it was full of, of, of jet fuel, melts the ice sheet, and a 160 feet, 50 meter diameter hole starts to form as it bores itself down into the actual seawater, which means that the wreckage, the munitions, and the radioactive material all start to sink into the actual ocean floor. This is a suboptimal scenario. It's not a great scenario, that's right. However, all is good. The United States and the Danish governments classify it as a broken arrow situation, which you've probably heard of, broken arrow from the film Broken Arrow, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which means an accident involving a nuclear weapon which does not present a risk of war. But it's cool. It's fine. All four bombs were destroyed in the crash. Situation's under control. That's what they say. In fact, they actually use the words, no cause for concern in relation to radioactive contamination or any violation of the foreign power's sovereignty and nuclear policy. All right. Provided you don't want to visit anywhere within a thousand miles of this one spot. <laughs> yeah. So they launch an intensive cleanup called Project Crested Ice, known amongst the workers there as Dr. Freeze Love. <laughs> and the aim was to complete the cleanup before the sea ice melts in the spring. So they had to do this quickly. Otherwise, all the contaminants would get washed out into sea and then you're in even more trouble. So hundreds of Thule workers are sent to go and clean up the disaster zone. Oh, that's not a job you want, is it? This this stuff gives me the chills because radiation, oh, you can't see it, can't yeah. feel it. It's killing you. It's killing you. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. But they're given like the kit and all that sort of stuff. So they, they, they go out there and uh, they are working, let's remind ourselves, in the eternal dark of the freezing Arctic winter, their, uh, their average temperature was minus 40 degrees Celsius, at times dropping to minus 60 degrees Celsius, minus 76 degrees Fahrenheit. It's pretty cold. Going to need a bubble hat at the very least. <laughs> at the very least, maybe some mittens. Yeah, and oh yeah, and with winds up to 89 miles per hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a pretty... Wear a parachute, that's my advice. You, they were earning their money while they were out there. Eight months later, 93% of the crashed aircraft and the plutonium contamination is gone. That is, in total, more than 550,000 US gallons of contaminated liquid that they had to remove and shipped back to the United States where they removed it. So they had to put it all in boxes, put it on a ship and ship it back to the States where they would dispose of it. Project Crested Ice ends on the 13th of September 1968. The operation is estimated to have cost $9.4 million. That's about $70 million as of 2021. Wow. The other cost is that there is then suspicion and there are like accusations being made that maybe Denmark's ban on nukes um, was being violated by the United States. But both governments say, no, look, the aircraft had approached the area because of an emergency. It hadn't intended on actually landing there and it only crashed because, well, for the reasons that we've given. 
So as a consequence of the Thule incident, as it's called, Chrome Dome operations are discontinued. That's kind oh, wow. of the final straw in the Chrome Dome cap. I mean, there's only so much radiation showering that one can get away with, isn't there? <laughs> I guess so. There was another one as well, which I haven't gone into, but another B-52 went down as well. Hello. This is the voice of the internet. In addition to the accidents in Spain and Greenland, Operation Chrome Dome experienced three other notable incidents. The first occurred near Goldsboro, North Carolina, on the 23rd of January 1961. A Boeing B-52 Strato Fortress carrying two three-four megaton Mark 39 nuclear bombs broke up in midair, dropping its payload in the process. Three crewmen died in the incident and information declassified in 2013 showed that one of the bombs came very close to detonating. The second incident occurred on 14 March 1961 near Yuba City, California, when a B-52 bomber carrying two nuclear weapons ran out of fuel causing the plane to crash into the ground. The weapons exploded without any radiation distribution. In 2012, a retired U.S. Air Force pilot claimed there were four, not two, bombs on board the plane. The third incident occurred in Savage Mountain, Garrett County, when the tail of a B-52 bomber broke off mid-flight rendering the plane uncontrollable. The plane crashed onto a farm and the bombs were found relatively intact in the middle of the wreckage. Thank you. Anyway, uh, safety procedures are reviewed. There are more stable explosives that are developed for use in the nukes themselves. And in 1971, Russia and the United States get together and they sign an agreement called Measures to Reduce the Risk of Nuclear War, with both parties agreeing to notify the other immediately in the event of an accidental, unauthorized or unexplained incident involving a nuclear weapon that could increase the risk of nuclear war. Because I guess there were itchy trigger fingers when oh, yeah. they register that one of these things goes off. That's a tricky call to make, though, isn't it? Da, Moscow. Hey, Sergey, it's Bob. Ah, oh, Bob, not again. <laughs> yeah, this one's kind of embarrassing this time. Uh, we're going to drop the clanger. <laughs> well, what is clanger? The clanger is the HX-47C, high-altitude, three-megaton payload nuclear device, and we've accidentally dropped one over the Arctic Circle. Ah, thank you for informing. I shall advise my superiors. Ah, thanks, Sergey. Uh, whilst you are on the phone, we too have small error. You might find northern Finland a bit more flowing than before. It was small error in nuclear guidance system. We will clean up, we promise. Well, all right, Sergey. We believe you. Okay, this is all? I guess so. So, I, I guess I hang up? Uh, I guess you do. No, you hang up. <laughs> no, 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 you hang up. No, it's your turn. You hang up. No, you. No, you. No, you. No, you. No, you. Okay, look, after three, I'm going to hang up. Still there. No, I still is. Okay, look, I'm really going to hang up this time, all right? Here I go. I love you, Bob. In what way, Ryan? Yes. Has our cat been killed by curiosity? Let me read you this next section, which is I entitle The Cat That Reopened the Case. Oh. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, this is a very story based episode. I love it. Uh, I love it. I like it. Interesting chapters and yep. characters. Yeah. So, it's been 20 years since the crash. It's 1986. It's summer in Denmark. I'm hanging out in the summer, rolled sleeves rolled up, yeah. uh, Miami Vice style. Play it, probably listening to Recepten. 
Yeah, probably. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm sure. Watching the football or something. Yeah, enjoying the football. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, there is a Danish radio journalist by the name of Paul Brink, and he receives a story lead one day. And the tip-off comes from a former worker at Thule called Ruben Eriksson. Brink goes to meet Eriksson and discovers that he has fallen terminally ill with lymph cancer. He has these horrific lesions all over his body. So Eriksson tells Brink that his cancer is a consequence of clearing away the plutonium snow following the crash in 68. And so Brink decides, well, he's going to interview research scientists who were responsible for testing the, the Thule workers at the time. But the answers they give him are super weird. And he's like, that just makes no sense at all. In fact, he says that the answers they gave were as polluted as the snow the Thule workers had removed. That was his quote. Uh, In fact, I looked into it and the reason they gave was that alcoholism caused by lonely working was the cause of his cancer and lesions. Right. Not the plutonium that he was shoveling up (laughs) and putting in a bucket. No, no, no. I mean, loneliness, that's just almost like kicking the nuts, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it was lonely. It was so just lonely, that's hence got the cancer. cancer. <laughs> Don't be lonely. Anyway, so, Paul Brink is now intrigued. Curious, some might say. Like the cat. Yes. Beautifully done. And he uses his radio show to appeal to other former workers, saying, come forward, you know, I'm interested in hearing, you know, your story. So, not only is his appeal a success, but... The phone doesn't stop ringing for days. He eventually meets with 25 men and discovers that each of them share similar symptoms, wow. the lesions all over their bodies and, uh, and, and or cancer. So he becomes at this point kind of a man obsessed. He writes, my interviews gave rise to questions that required more interviews that raise new questions. And so he launches at this full investigation. He starts by trying to talk with the National Board of Health in Copenhagen. These are the people that were responsible for overseeing the health of the workers after the crash. And he's basically given the runaround. They don't don't answer his calls. They refuse interviews, that sort of stuff. But meanwhile, he meets Marius Schmidt. Marius Schmidt is the ex-fire chief um, at Thule, who was in command of the firefighters on the night and the civilians after the crash. Schmidt tells Brink that there are many more than just the 25 that he's found and that they all need proper medical scans to reveal the extent of the damage to their to their bodies and to see if there is a pattern of poisoning. So Paul Brink tries to get some money from the radio station he works at to conduct the scans, but he's kind of warned off getting involved. Basically, Danish National Radio, which is the station that he was working for, is considered part of the Emergency Management Agency, which means that in the case of a war or a massive incident, the radio acts as the voice of the authorities in communicating messages. So at that point, people in charge of the radio station are starting to either get messages saying, cut this out or don't encourage this behavior. So Paul Brink pays for the scans himself, just out of his own pocket. So the scan comes back, he gets the results, and sure enough, guess what? There's a a pattern among (laughs) the workers. In fact, the results reveal the number of sick workers is remarkable. I believe the workers deserve to be examined properly. And so he goes back to the National Board of Health and he says, hey, look, here's some evidence. And the Board of Health continues to evade his request for an interview. 
So instead, rather than doing his interview, they just step forward and they go, you know what, we're going to do our own investigation of the cleanup, including a health check on all of the workers as well. So they're happy. The workers are now like, oh, great, we're going to finally get to the bottom of this. And they also commit to bringing back some of the snow samples from the United States. So this is good news. and right. Everyone's kind of celebrating. But the workers have their health check and the results come back as... Everyone's fine. No signs of radiation have been found. <laughs> <laughs> and those snow samples from the US... Nothing in them. Can't, snow, can't, can't get them. They, oh, they, they can't they get can't, them. They, they're unable to be obtained from the United States. So Paul at this point is super frustrated because he's really sensing a cover-up in action, right? And at that point, a whistleblower leaks to him an internal memo from the National Board of Health, which shows that the snow samples never were in the United States uh, because they were, they were never there. They were always in Denmark in the National Board of oh. Health. <laughs> right. So <laughs> at this point, he's now like, okay, wait a minute. This is not right. He also talks about at this point, he starts to be tailed. Cars following him. He's jogging at night and there are shadowy characters following him. That sort of thing. A lot of intimidation that seems to be happening. And the government's keen to keep this quiet. He's told by some other whistleblowers because basically if this case goes forward and they're found guilty and they have to provide reparations to these Thule workers, then basically it opens up every case to every United States military worker or contractor across the globe, of which there are many of these, oh. for any injuries or any exposure to harmful materials that they might have had. So they just want to keep it super quiet because otherwise it's going to cost them a lot of money. But Brink perseveres because he is a cat which is curious. And he is invited to go meet with the ex Thule airbase manager who tells Paul that the Americans bought a submarine called the Star 3 to the base and used it to search the seafloor for an object he recognised as one of the four bombs. So when they said that all four bombs had been destroyed, that was not necessarily the case. Ooh. Three bombs had been destroyed, one had sunk to the bottom of the sea, and they were looking to try and find it. So, somewhere underneath Greenland is an unexploded <laughs> nuclear bomb. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So, 1992, Brink leaves his job at the radio station and he travels to the United States. In Washington, he visits the National Archives there and he discovers that there are loads of files on Project Crested Ice which have recently been declassified with some redaction, you know, black, black marker pen over of some of the text. And he finds references to the missing object, as it's called for, you know, that they were searching for using the Star 3 submarine. So he comes home with copies of this evidence and he discovers further evidence that the United States ambassador at the time, 1968, had tried to keep the crash a secret to protect another agreement, a secreter agreement <laughs> it's that, so many that the United States had with the Danes. But he doesn't know what that agreement is. He just knows that there is this agreement between, a secret agreement between the United States and this the This is Danish. crazy. I'm, I'm hooked, mate. I've got to tell you. So now he's working for TV News and he applies pressure to the National Board of Health and gets them on air to agree to investigate the missing object, this thing that was whatever they were looking for at the bottom of the sea. Again, they say they failed to find anything. Uh, despite Brink saying that he literally walked off the street to go into the National Archives in Washington, it's amazing that they couldn't do the same. You know, they couldn't find these files that he'd be able to find just as a regular guy, let alone with the, you know, the diplomatic channels that they've got. At this point, the Greenlandic prime minister, he's quoted as saying, it is evidence of the most repugnant part of Danish rule in Greenland. Where else in the world are people subjected to such risks? 
Well, I mean, there's quite a long list of places in the world where people are subjected to such things, but still. But for him to come forward and make that statement... Yeah, that's pretty bold. It's pretty bold, yeah. And so tensions really start to rise. The United States ambassador in Denmark confronts Brink, calls him to the office, and he says, there is no missing bomb. You're making fairy tales up, uh, and you need to back off, which he does not do. (laughs) 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 Because almost immediately after that, an insider from the National Board of Earth comes forward to Brink and says that they have been lying to the public and the government for years about the Thule incident. Brink interviews the new Minister for Foreign Affairs and asks about the missing object again, and if there is any secret agreement between the two nations. And he's basically threatened. He's he's told that if you persist with this, your, your TV station and you as a journalist, you won't get any stories. Like us as a government, we just won't give you anything, which basically will cut you off. But that doesn't scare him off. He continues anyway, and they just continue to give denials. Another whistleblower comes forward with a copy of the secret agreement. So now he has the secret agreement and signed in 1957. This new secret agreement proves that the Prime Minister, H.C. Hansen, gave the Americans permission to not only fly over Greenland with nukes, but also to hold and store the weapons at Thule Air Base. So he'd just said to the public, nah, we're totally nuke-free. But to the Americans, they'd agreed, yeah, just totally do it, whatever. Just keep it quiet. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So Paul Sogard, who's the foreign minister in 1978, had said, this is his quote televised, yes, the Americans know and respect our nuclear policy. So I deny the existence of overflights in Greenland. Neither are there any nuclear weapon-carrying planes stationed in Greenland. So he's kind of gotten banged to rights. So now unable to keep the fact that there is this secret agreement, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs confirms that there was indeed a document, an agreement, but that, you know, look, it was a different time, extraordinary measures and such were needed. It's classified, that's why we weren't able to tell you anything. Paul Brink goes, well, I still want to see the document, right? He hasn't seen it yet, he just knows that it exists. So he asks to see a copy of this document that they've now just agreed does exist. So he goes to the Danish National Archives. They refuse to let him in. And so he turns up every day for four days with TV cameras saying, I'm here waiting outside the National Archives again for them to let me in. Until eventually, at the end of the week, he is called into an office and he's told, you can read the documents but just you, and you can only read it on the agreement that you do not report the entire contents. You can sort of tell people vaguely what you've read, but you get to read it once, and that's it. You don't get to read the entire thing. And if you do, you're in serious trouble because you're breaking, like, confidentiality and tr- top secrets. And sure, all they had an NDA in place. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, yeah. So he agrees, all right? And he goes into the archives, and he's given the documents, And he has his TV camera there. And so he proceeds to read the whole thing to the camera, (laughs) outlining all the lies that the government has been telling everyone for about 40 years. Basically, that the Danish government had tacitly given the United States the go-ahead to store nuclear weapons at Thule. So Brink, after reading the report live on TV, he's reported to the police for breaching his agreement, but the police later just dropped the case. The Danish government uh, agreed to pay 50,000 kroner to each of the 1,700 Thule workers. Wow. Yeah. The Thule tribe, the ones who were moved 60 miles north, they were awarded damages of 500,000 kroner for having been relocated illegally, as it turns out. A report is commissioned to determine the history of the United States nuclear overflights over Greenland and the role of Thule Air Base. And 
and a two-volume work is published in 1997, which confirms that there were armed flights over Greenland and they were recurrent. They happened for years. But the United States had acted in good faith. In line with the secret agreement that nobody knew about. <laughs> yes, exactly. In good faith. And the report then blamed the previous Prime Minister, H.C. Hansen, for intentionally introducing ambiguity in the Danish-US agreement. He was not asked about, nor did he mention, the official Danish nuclear policy when meeting with the United States ambassador in 1957. So he just signed the letter, never having actually specifically mentioned, by the way, can you not fly you them not. over? <laughs> can you just not? Yeah. So the report goes on to confirm that the United States did stockpile nuclear weapons in Greenland until 1965. In fact, the report went even further, and this is amazing, revealing details of a, a secret project called Project Iceworm. This is a top-secret U.S. plan that even the Danish didn't know about, right? Now, the purpose of Project Iceworm was, they said to the Danish government, that it was to test various construction techniques under the ice sheet. So they were going to dig tunnels in the ice sheet to test whether or not they could build, like, uh, buildings in there. So they built a hospital and a shop and a theatre and a church down there under, under the ice. Uh, but the reality was, what they were actually doing was building a system of tunnels under Greenland's ice sheet, which would stretch 2,500 miles in <laughs> length. Lord. That's 4,000 kilometres across the entire ice sheet, where they would have 600 nuclear missiles, which they could move around on tracks through these tunnels to different places so that they could be ready to launch at any point at the Soviet Union. Wow. Stunning. It didn't work and they they didn't manage to complete it. There's a lot there that's still there, but they didn't manage to complete it. And the reason for that is they hadn't accounted for the fact that the ice moves as quickly as it does. So you'd think of ice as being quite sturdy, like rock or whatever, but it's actually quite malleable. And a lot of the tunnels started to close in. They had a big control center where the, the, the roof dropped in oh. by like five feet. And yeah, because the ice is constantly <laughs> moving. So you would be constantly having to re-dig the ice out if you were to um, persist with, with your plans. So that's Project Ice. Anyway, the truth is out. The Danish government had given permission for nuclear weapons to be in Greenland, which contravenes their policy that they had to be nuke-free. The US had stored weapons at Thule Air Base, and the B-52 bomber wasn't patrolling outside of Greenland space. It had been flying directly overhead oh, when, when the damage happened. So-and-so. Yeah. So Paul Brink, he wrote a book, Thule Case, The Universe of Lies. And in 1997, it won the most prestigious prize for Danish journalists, the Kavling Prize. So, yeah, he was lauded and accredited for that. Five years later, October 23rd, 2002, Paul Brink goes for a run and dies suddenly of a heart attack. He was 49 years old and left behind his wife and son. He's buried at Holman Cemetery in Copenhagen. Now, a lot of the work that I've been doing for this research, obviously a lot of this has sort of been recorded in many different places, but what I was interested in is, is, is there any suspicion? Is there any conspiracy around Paul Brink's sudden, you know, untimely death, you might say? I'm not looking to dramatize this or make this fit the narrative of Curiosity Killed the Cat, but certainly in his own book, he talks about being shadowed and being followed. Uh, there is a film that has been produced about it called Idealisten, uh, The Idealist. Uh, which is written and directed by Christina Rosendahl. And the sort of the sense of fear and intimidation is certainly present in, in both his story and in her film. But there isn't a sense that, that there's anything more mysterious going on with his death, that it was just an accident. I mean, that, that must have happen. built up a fair degree of stress, frankly, as well. <laughs> well, there is that, right? He spent an awful lot of time putting himself up against some very powerful 
well, two nations of very powerful people that were determined for him to not say anything. Wow, what a hero. Yeah, absolutely. So there you go. I, I think that Paul Brink, what a hero for, for following that through to the very Stuck end. Despite to his guns. All of the, That's amazing. Yeah. And that's it. That was absolutely terrific. It had highs, it had lows, it had subterfuge, it had espionage, it had lies, secrets, and a beacon of truth, Mr. Brink. That was remarkable. I very much enjoyed that, sir. I really would recommend The Idealist or Idealisten. It's in Danish. It's more like a, a documentary drama film, but the performances are fantastic. It delves into archive footage. So you're actually seeing a lot of these politicians talking in oh, wow. 1957 and so on. I really would recommend it. If you're in the UK, it's on Amazon Prime. Prime, so if you've got that, you can go and see that for I've free. That. I can go see that. Uh, otherwise, I'm sure you'll find it in other services where yeah. you can stream it. Awesome. Oh, no, that was really good. Well done. I give you full congratulations, sir, on your application of curiosity. Shortage of cats, I would observe, but uh, <laughs> I understand that this is a, a cool metaphor. Cat. Cool Brink was a cool <laughs> cat. Come on. All right, I'll take that. Oh, no, that was great. Thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed that, and I hope, I'm sure, everyone else did too. My pleasure. What a story. And here's to Paul Brink. No, well done. Congratulations. And a big thank you from me on behalf of them. Who's them? The listeners. Are they following us? The, and the, yeah, and that guy outside has been there for a long time. I'm just saying. You see the guy with the, the unmarked van? <laughs> and the newspaper with a little bit cut out in the middle. <laughs> His eyes flicking back and forth. <laughs> Amazing. Right, shall we um, have a look at next week? Let's do it. It's your turn. It is my turn. You're excited? Uh, well, I'm not, I don't know yet. I'm nervous. I'd, I'm hoping for something a little more modern than some of my recent endeavours, but we shall see. Well, let's find out. Okay, I'm going to hit the button. Are you ready? I'm ready. Desolator, do the desolating. Do the desolation. Okay, Peter, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, and your place is? Drumroll. It's Bulgaria. Ooh, Bulgaria. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that's good. That's exciting. Yeah. Okay, and uh, your time? 1910 to 1920. Ooh. Okay, well that just leaves your subject matter. And the subject is... Writing. Writing. Oh, that's good. Oh, I'm excited. I am excited. I can now confirm so... <laughs> I am excited. <laughs> so, writing in Bulgaria during 1910 to 1920. Okay, I'll see what I can dig up. Awesome. A... So, yeah, uh, that's our show for this week. Um, thank you a lot for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about anything you've heard, you can email us at hhepodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and uh, you might appear on a future show if you tell us something interesting. That's right. And one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can also find us on many of the social media that exists. And you, follow us, and you'll get a little bit of History Happened Everywhere in the form of one-minute animations or little jokes. They'll appear in your little inbox. And obviously we'll be back soon with another episode, but in the meantime, look out for The Verdict. That's the After Show podcast in which the mighty brain, the raconteur, the judge, the educated and erudite Paul Dursley 
casted judgment over our efforts. He's so erudite. He is erudite. And of course, don't forget that this is, what, episode 33? There are 32 other episodes to go back and have a listen through if you haven't listened to these, and then a whole bunch of other verdicts as well, So plus a whole archive of our little animations as well. We've got tons of those. So hhepodcast.com, you'll see everything on there or on YouTube or your podcast provider. There's a whole bunch of history happened everywhere now. We are everywhere. So yes, there's lots to, ha- to be had. So dip in, have a good enjoy of our back catalogue. And that is basically it for this time. So thank you once again for listening. Thank you once again, Ryan, for being excellent. And all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History Happened Everywhere. everywhere.